Women's Health Melbourne is a boutique specialist fertility and women's health practice, caring for women at all life stages. We're proud to provide world-class holistic medical care, including IVF and a range of other fertility treatments. We provide our patients with every opportunity to achieve their goals. Our two Melbourne locations are in Fitzroy and our new state-of-the-art Caulfield practice. Reach us at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au and you can follow both Women's Health Melbourne and Dr Rayleigh Alou on the socials. Welcome to Knocked Up, a podcast about fertility, pregnancy and women's health. I'm your host, Geordie Morrison, and I'm joined as always by Dr Rayleigh Alou, CREI Fertility Specialist, Gynaecologist and Director of Women's Health Melbourne. We're doing a special episode today at Listener Request about the coronavirus, and we're proud to bring to you, to hear their perspectives, Dr Priya Alexander, a GP and host of The Wholesome Doctor, and also Dr KJ Farley, who is an intensive care specialist. Rayleigh, we've spoken to Priya and KJ about sort of broader issues with coronavirus, COVID-19, but specific to your patients and women who are trying to conceive, if you're starting the ball rolling with IVF or thinking of starting, should you be put off? So, look, it's a really good question because IVF and trying to get pregnant in general, you would consider as elective. It's a funny word to use, but you would consider it as something that you may not have to do this second. And a lot of people will be thinking, well, should I proceed with my plan for treatment or should I just wait and see? Look, I think either option is valid at this time. And I would caution against panic because even though coronavirus and COVID-19 is a new virus and seems to be quite infectious and many of us will contract it potentially uh, as the virus spreads, in Australia we're uniquely placed to kind of minimise the spread of the virus. We have what is known in medicine sometimes as challenging in other scenarios as the tyranny of distance, meaning that our population centres are quite far away from each other and there's not a lot of commuting between them on a day-to-day basis. We also have a lot of education and awareness and we have a highly educated public. So taking simple measures, which we're going to go into in more detail with our guests, like social distancing, um, which we'll define later in the episode, and simple hand hygiene-related issues really will reduce the number of people that do eventually get the COVID-19 virus in our population. Pregnant women and women trying to conceive are, as a generalisation, a very healthy group of people and are in an age bracket where catching COVID-19 is unlikely to have dire consequences of any kind. It's going to present like a cold or a flu or a virus and most people will not require hospitalisation and most people will not require intensive care. And in fact, many people who do catch COVID-19 will just experience very mild cold and flu symptoms. And every year, I can tell you in winter, patients who are undertaking fertility treatment do catch colds and do have mild respiratory viruses and we don't tell them to abandon all treatment. There may come a time where health resources are needed to be focused to ensure that older Australians, particularly who are more at risk, do get their primary care 
And that may in the future result in things like elective surgery being delayed. But I would say to my patients at the moment that the advice given by Melbourne IVF, which can be found on the Melbourne IVF website, and we'll put a link in our show notes, is that women who are considered low risk and pregnancies who are, that are considered low risk um, do not need to put off their treatment at this time. KJ has had an interest in intensive care ever since her rotation there as a junior doctor. She's found the patients and medicine inspiring, making a big difference to people's lives. Holistic care, not just focused on one organ system. So KJ, what made you interested in, in um, intensive care medicine? In intensive care? Well, I wasn't always intending to do intensive care, but as part of usual medical training as a junior medical doctor, I did a rotation through intensive care uh, in my second or third year as a doctor. And I really loved it. I loved the workplace. I loved the teamwork. I liked the mixture of, you know, talking to people and considering the whole patients and chatting to families and doing procedures and all the rest of the things that intensive care involves. I like the fact that I can fix things and I can see the results of actions quickly. And now another 10 years have gone past since then and here I am. It's fantastic. And as a gynaecologist and fertility specialist, I hope that most of my patients never go to intensive care. <laughs> but you guys do such an important job when things do go to that point where people get really, really sick. Um, we are doing an episode today on the coronavirus and COVID. Can you tell us as an intensivist uh, what your perspective is and have you seen the healthcare system evolving and changing in this environment? That's a good question and the answer to that question is changing day by day. So it's a difficult question to answer. Obviously this is a new type of virus so no one in the world except for you know 100,000 people in Wuhan now have immunity to this virus so it's something that we're all at risk of catching one time or another. Most patients, my understanding of the clinical information about what happens to people who get this virus is that most people stay well enough to remain at home, like at least 80% of patients or something like that remain well enough to stay at home, you know, with fever and flu-like symptoms and body aches and pains and that type of stuff that doesn't require you to go, be sick enough to go to hospital. And then a proportion of patients, in particular elderly people, are at risk of getting sicker and needing to be admitted to hospital for oxygen treatments or other things that can only be provided in the hospital setting. And then a minority of people, thankfully, um, are sick enough that they need intensive care support with breathing machines and breathing tubes and stuff like that. From my point of view as an intensive care specialist, what we would like to do is reduce the number of people that would need, you know, that get so sick that they might need intensive care support just like you said with your patients you hope that they never need to see me in my role as an intensivist and I would like to see as few of these coronavirus patients as possible and I think the best way that we've got to achieve that is through public health measures and I'm really pleased to see that there's been some new announcements today from the government about uh, public health measures that are being instituted state by state and some Australia-wide to try and prevent lots and lots of people getting this disease at once which has a risk of overwhelming 
healthcare systems in the way that it has done overseas. And that's what I think that's, as an intensivist, that's what we should be all as Australians trying to avoid. And how does our health system from an intensive care point of view compare to places like Italy where they have been completely overwhelmed? That's also a good question. I've been learning a lot about this myself in the last couple of days and weeks because I had no idea what the Italian healthcare system was like until just recently either. My understanding is that their healthcare system, particularly in North Italy, is quite well resourced and comparable to ours. Um, So they've got lots of intensive care beds. They've got very first world hospitals like we do, good public health systems, good communication, good access to pathology and radiology and stuff like that. So I think their health systems, from what I've understood in the last couple of weeks, are broadly comparable. And I think the key is the number of people who get this infection. So I'm sure everybody by now has seen the, um, the flatten the curve infographic where it shows that really big, tall mountain of people getting infected all at once really quickly and presenting to, you know, because a proportion of those need to go to hospital and a smaller proportion need intensive care. They all go at once to a hospital and there just aren't enough physical spots to put them in. And then with public health and social distancing measures, you might get that curve which looks like a small, long hill with a much lower peak that means that the same number of people will get infected with this virus over time but because the peak is lower, the healthcare system has enough beds and has enough oxygen and has enough breathing machines and has enough nurses and doctors to provide the type of care that we usually do to patients that are very unwell. And that's, I think, what we should all be aiming for in Australia to try and flatten that curve so that the healthcare system can cope. And Kato, if someone is really, really sick with something like coronavirus or something like the flu and they come to intensive care what do you do to help support them and try and help them get through this situation? So we would do what we would normally do with any other patient which is see what are the problems that that person has right now and what can we do to fix them so specific to coronavirus the problem seems to be that people's oxygen levels fall very low and they need the assistance of a breathing tube and a breathing machine to help them get enough oxygen in their bodies that they can survive. Um, we would also provide, you know, dialysis support if their kidneys didn't work, or that seems very rare in this disease, and, you know, other bits and pieces that we would routinely do to try and prevent people from getting clots in the legs or lungs and so on. Yeah, and from what you've learned from the international experience, because we really haven't, I don't believe, had many people get that sick in Australia, if any, from coronavirus. No. Um, So what do you think if a patient does get admitted to ICU, what's their chance of coming out fine at the other end? I think that's a difficult question to answer, particularly because the Italian patients are still recovering. Um, The Italian and Chinese patients that were sick enough to need intensive care, which I'd just like to emphasise is the vast minority of patients. Most patients who get coronavirus may have the flu or a flu-like symptoms or even less. They may be very, very low in symptoms and be able to be completely well at home. Intensive care patients are by far the minority, which is really good. And I think if we have the healthcare resources to look after people in the way that we usually would, 
we would have, you know, those people would have a good chance of surviving the same as if they got the flu or any other type of severe lung disease in non-coronavirus circumstances. You mentioned that um, where our system is not dissimilar to Northern Italy. Northern Italy has has seen a, such a fast spread and the mortality is really high compared to China, especially when you look at the size of population. I mean, obviously this changes all the time. Italy's cases just seemed to multiply so fast and we were quite slow for a while. When we spoke on Friday, um, we had 128 cases in Australia and this morning it was 250. So it looks like we're starting to fastly multiply as well. If we're like Italy, what does that mean for us? So what I'm hoping is that we can learn from Italy's experience. The descriptions that I've heard from Italy um, that are on BBC News and so on is that this exploded like a bomb for them and they weren't expecting it and they weren't looking hard for it because they had one case and then they had 20 cases and then they had 100 cases the next day. It was really, really quick in Italy. And what I'm hoping in Australia and other countries that are not Italy is that we can learn from their experience and start to institute measures to slow the spread of this disease and to flatten the curve earlier and prevent that enormous spike in infections that Italy saw. And I think Australia has gone a really long way to doing that since we spoke on Friday. So today, uh, you know, tomorrow's today's Sunday, so mm-hmm. tomorrow on Monday, um, gatherings of more than 500 people will be banned. Uh, the new they've just announced new restrictions this afternoon. Uh, any incoming travellers to Australia will be required to self-isolate in their homes for two weeks to go past the incubation period, so they're not wandering around in our communities infecting people without knowing it. And I think that's a proportionate response to what we've got at the moment. I think there are a couple of differences from Italy and you mentioned the population density is one of them. So there's heaps of people in northern Italy and they're much closer together in terms of their big towns than we are here. So Melbourne and Sydney are very far apart. They're obviously our biggest town. And I think that will be a benefit because the travel between, you know, it's un- would be uncommon for people to commute from Melbourne to Sydney for work, for example, whereas commuting amongst northern Italian towns I think is more common. So that type of thing, I guess, is an enforced social distancing because there's a physical distance between us that's much larger than in Italy. And hopefully that will stand us in good stead going forward as well. Do you think what we've learnt from China, who were amazing at containing the virus to 80,000. I mean, and it's hardly gone up since. And what what have they done right? And are our cultures just too fundamentally too fundamentally different for what worked for them to work for us? Um, so I think they did a lot of things right at the very beginning when they didn't know, nobody knew what this disease was. It's brand new. And so they didn't know how deadly it was. And they didn't know how quickly it would spread. And they acted based on their, I presume, on their understanding of the worst-case scenario. So the China and Hong Kong had SARS previously, um, and I think they had a bit more experience in the management of evolving epidemics and pandemics, well, not pandemics, because SARS wasn't a pandemic, but they had more experience in the systems that were needed to roll out major social changes than we did and I think we've got the advantage that we can learn from them as we appear to be now mm. so that we don't have to create that work from scratch like they did back in SARS. So I think what they did really well was 
early social distancing, and by social distancing, um, I mean, you know, people keeping away from each other as much as possible. So the fewer people, if you're infected, the fewer people you spread the virus to, then the fewer people they can spread it to, and the fewer people those people spread it to, and that, that really rapid exponential growth just slows down dramatically. So they had really extreme measures very early where people weren't allowed to leave their houses and all schools and everything was shut down all at once, essentially. And we've had the luxury in a way to not have to do that yet and just instituted gradual social changes to help people stay away from each other and not put our vulnerable people at risk and not place strain on the healthcare system. And I think we're doing that. So people are staying at home more. Major businesses in Australia have instructed their workers to work from home starting from tomorrow. Um, I heard that some major um, telecommunications companies have closed all their non-essential offices and stuff like that. So people are getting the message here in Australia that the less we see each other, the slower this virus will spread and the more likely we'll be able to manage the outcomes. So as an intensive care doctor, how would you like other doctors to behave in terms of non-essential services? How will that help you guys manage resources? So at the moment, we don't have a major strain on resources that I'm aware of. So I think it makes perfect sense for people to go about their routine medical business the way they normally would, except with some additional precautions to make sure they themselves as healthcare professionals don't get infected and spread this to other patients. So, you know, asking about travel history early and making sure people, their patients and healthcare workers aren't returning to work if they've been in a high-risk area, you know, have appropriate precautions in that type of way. It, there may come a time in the future where healthcare, you know, in the pointy end of healthcare and intensive care is strained and elective surgery and so on may need to slow down or stop in order to you know, make more hospital beds and more intensive care beds available for patients with coronavirus. But we're not at that point at the moment. We haven't been telling patients in fertility medicine to cease all treatment. And in fact, the guidelines that have been released this weekend from Melbourne IVF, where I practice my IVF, have been that we can continue treatment for patients who would be at um, or considered to have a low risk pregnancy. Do you think that's reasonable at this point in time? Yes, I do. And in terms of pregnant women with coronavirus, from an intensive care perspective, has there been information from around the world about whether or not women are at higher risk if they're pregnant? Yeah, there has been information uh, and there's no evidence at this point either from China or Italy or anywhere else that pregnant women are at any higher risk of a, of a bad outcome if they catch coronavirus than a, a non-pregnant woman of the same age. I think pregnant women are at just the same risk of catching it as anyone else, but then no more likely to have a bad outcome. And I think the other thing that's worth saying at this point is that you know, by virtue of their age, most pregnant women are going to be under 50 or 60, I would think, and certainly mostly much younger than that, wouldn't you say, Rayleigh? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there's, there's very clear data from China and Italy that the rates of bad outcomes and of people dying of coronavirus increases dramatically with older age. So people in the 80 and over age group are much more at risk 
than people in the 50 and under age group, which would be the vast majority, if not all, of your patients, Raylia, I would think. So as a cohort of young women, we're relatively protected from a bad outcome, thankfully. The other thing that I just want to make people aware of is relation to children, that there's children appear to be very protected from even getting severe disease, never mind death. Um, so there's only been one report worldwide of a person under the age of 20 dying of this new coronavirus. Nobody knows why children seem to be protected from severe disease. It looks like children are getting infected at the same rates as everybody else, but they're just not getting sick. So some children may have minimal symptoms or just look like they've got a usual snotty nose like kids get all the time, but they don't seem to deteriorate and get really sick, even to the point that most of them don't need to go to hospital and almost none have needed intensive care. And there's been no deaths in children under 10 worldwide reported yet, which is fabulous. Which is a wonderful thing. Well, look, thank yeah. you so much, KJ, for interrupting your shift in ICU today to talk to us. Um, we really no appreciate it. I just have one question, KJ, sorry. And you mentioned about decisions being made about social distancing and events. Who's, who's making those decisions? I don't have direct information okay. about this as an intensive care specialist yeah, okay, um, specifically, um, but the government is making these types of travel bans and gathering bans, presumably on the advice of the health minister and health panels and so on. I don't have any, any more information than that really than anyone else does, yeah. um, except to say that I, I, I feel very strongly that those measures are effective at stopping the spread of this disease through the community very quickly, like we've seen in Wuhan in China and in northern Italy, and that as Australian individuals, pregnant and non-pregnant kids or non-kids, we all have a responsibility at this point to do our bit to try and prevent the most vulnerable people in our community, which are the elderly, from acquiring this disease and try and prevent us getting to the point of northern Italy and Wuhan where our health systems are really stretched. And that can be done by really simple measures like washing your hands more frequently. Um, you need to wash your hands with soap and water for 20 seconds in order to kill any virus that might be on your hands. Sneeze into your elbow. Stand a metre away from other people in queues. Avoid crowded places, the movies, concerts, football games, all of those things. Have a think about you know, what your childcare plans might be if it gets to the point that schools or childcare are closed. Those are things that we can all do now to make a real difference to the pathway that this illness goes down in our place. How to think about, you know, who is most vulnerable in your family and how you might protect them. Maybe they need to do online delivery of their shopping or really simple things that we can all do that when you put them all together, could make an enormous difference to what happens here in Australia. Thank you so much, KJ. Thank you so Pleasure. much. Let's hope you have a quiet afternoon at work. Yeah, thank you. I hope so too. <laughs> right, thank okay, you. take care. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much, Dr Priya Alexander, for joining us again on Knocked Up. Thanks, guys, for having me on. Um, so we've just decided to do a special episode at Listener Request about coronavirus for our patients and listeners. Uh, can you give us your perspective as a GP on the coronavirus? What is it and how will it affect us in Australia? 
So, look, I guess the first thing is it's a virus, like you said. It's what we're calling COVID-19, which is basically a new coronavirus. So we've seen coronaviruses before, um, and SARS is probably the one that most people will know. This is a new, what I call kind of sister or brother of it. It's a new a new kind of um, coronavirus, and that's, that's a scary thing in medicine when we haven't seen something before. We don't know how it's going to behave, how it's going to transmit, um, how fatal it's potentially going to be. And so that, you know, in itself generates some concern. So this is something that has originated in China and we're now seeing it kind of, you know, work its way through countries across the world. And I'm sure people at the moment are, are looking at their news feeds and watching this kind of evolve in front of their eyes. In terms of Australia, it's, you know, being very honest, how is it going to impact us? Don't know yet, but we're certainly seeing that cases have been brought in from overseas and that's the world we live in. People travel, people can easily hop on a plane. So things like viruses can travel quite easily around the world. Um, but at the moment in Australia, you know, we're seeing cases slowly rise. Um, we're not seeing huge amounts of human-to-human transmission at the moment, which is wonderful. And I guess that's why in Australia we're saying, you know, can we flatten this curve? Can we all do our bit to stop this from spreading really rapidly to the population? So, Priya, we're all hearing about flattening of the curve and you put up a great post on your social media at The Wholesome Doctor about this today. Can you tell us a little bit just to explain to our listeners, what do we mean when we say flattening the curve? So basically, really, what we mean is if if we get COVID-19 spreading in the population really rapidly, so say we're all going out to the football, we're all going out, the Grand Prix had run, and we're all transmitting this virus, it basically means that the numbers will spike really quickly and really quite in a high number. You know, we'll get hundreds of thousands of cases really quickly. The risk with that is, yes, 80% of us are going to have what we think is a mild illness with COVID-19, which is, you know, a dry cough, a fever, a sore throat. But 15 to 20% are going to have more serious illness and they're probably going to require medical services like hospitalisation and a lower fraction will probably need intensive care or ventilation. If you've got really huge numbers in the population of the virus, then you're going to need more and more hospital beds to deal with people who are needing um, the intervention. And basically what you then get is a healthcare system which is basically flooded, absolutely swamped because there are just huge numbers of the virus circulating. So flattening the curve is basically, you know, we can't stop COVID-19, you know, that's not possible now, but we can certainly slow it down. And so flattening the curve is about all doing our bit to stop this virus from rapidly transmitting between people. So having social distancing measures, not doing non-essential gatherings. If you don't need to go to a, um, you know, a big gathering or a concert or something, then avoiding it, avoiding non-essential travel, basically washing your hands, covering your mouth and your nose and your sneeze, the really simple stuff to stop this virus from spreading rapidly. And what that does is it means we have less numbers they escalate less quickly and our healthcare system can deal with this better. That's what it's about. We keep hearing this term social distancing. Can you explain just what we mean? What What is social distancing? Yeah, I think it's a good question. And I think, you know, you, you, you're illustrating a good point here, which is that I think people are hearing all these terms, including something as simple as hand washing, but actually no one's explaining exactly what it means, yeah, which is where it can get confusing. And quarantine, self-isolating, yes. how you know, these are all different? 
Yeah, they are. So, you know, first of all, the, the social distancing, when we say that, we basically mean having personal space, and we're saying about 1.5 metres is what's safe in order to prevent this virus from spreading. So 1.5 metres, we think, is the distance at which the respiratory droplets, anything less than that, if people are coughing and sneezing and don't have a covered face and nose, the respiratory droplets can potentially, you know, go that distance. So social distancing is give people their personal space. If you don't need to be around other people at the moment, then please, you know, there's all these hashtags at the moment, stay at home, um, you know, stay indoors, all these types of things. It's basically try not to be around lots of people so that this thing can't spread. That's great. And, you know, a lot of our cultural things that we do, and, and I find this, you know, we've got to stop ourselves. So as a doctor, I've got to stop myself shaking hands with patients because I often do shake hands with patients or touching patients yeah. as a kind of comforting, you know, body language. We've got to stop doing that. And, you know, I would say to patients, you know, we're doing this to try and reduce the spread of virus and, you know, please don't take it that we don't care or that we, you know, don't like you or that we're racially profiling you in some way. Yeah. I can tell my patients... I am not shaking anyone's hand right now. And it's purely to take on board the Department of Health's recommendation to reduce contact and the potential to spread um, any kind of virus. Absolutely. And I think it's a big shift for a lot of us, which is, you know, not shaking hands. Um, even simple stuff like not touching your face is really, really hard. And the minute you start thinking about it, you, you feel an itch or a scratch and you go, oh my gosh, I've got to scratch it. But, you know, we're having to modify behaviours. And I think. Um, I think we're bordering really, you know, there's a fine line here really between people being complacent and people being panicked. And I think either end of the spectrum is not ideal um, for what we're dealing with right now. I think we need to kind of be somewhere in the middle, which is worried, concerned, taking action but not panicked um, and doing the stuff you're talking about, which is if you're taking those measures, then you're really protecting the rest of the community. We know there's a few testing centres around Melbourne, but we're not meant to just turn up. What how do we know we should be tested or what do we do if we're not feeling well? So at the moment, um, the recommendation really is if you are unwell, you've got a fever, dry cough, shortness of breath, really any symptom you're not sure, you are deemed higher risk if you have either engaged in any um, overseas travel in the last 14 days or if you've had contact with someone who is COVID-19, a confirmed case, so they've had a positive swab. Um, look, if you're at all worried at the moment, the idea is not to just rock up to your GP and say, you know, oh, I've got a bit of a fever and a cough and do I need to be tested? Because you're really putting the people in the waiting room, the reception staff, the doctor at risk. And so they're asking you to call ahead so that they can triage you. And if your dean's low risk and they say, look, you've got no travel history, you've not had contact with anyone who's COVID positive, we'll see you, that's fine. But if they think you're high risk or if you think you're high risk, then really you either attend a fever clinic and there are many set up around um, Australia. So there's been additional funding for that. So you can look at that online, um, where to go. There is a coronavirus health hotline in Victoria, which you can call and it's 24-7, so they can tell you where to go. Or you can attend an ED, but again, you want to ideally wear a mask before you just walk into the waiting room. So an ED's emergency department? Yes, emergency department, yep. Yeah. Do, what should our temperature be normally? So, look, your temperature, the temperature can vary, you know, moment to moment. So anything, you know, 35, you know, 35.6 to anything 37 and a half, 
can be considered normal, okay? Anything over 37 and a half at the moment, people are getting a little bit anxious about. So there's some debate as to these um, kind of low-grade fevers and temperature screenings and how effective is it. Um, 37 and a half is not really what we would in medicine, I think you'll agree, Rayleigh, would call a true temperature. We go 38 degrees and over, yes, we consider you to be febrile, to have a temperature. There is a range, so I think people need to stop kind of thinking, gosh, it's fluctuating, that fluctuates, temperature fluctuates according to what's going on in the body. Um, you know, are you outside, are you inside, how much clothing are you wearing, it varies. So you don't need to worry so much about variation, but if you are febrile, if you are over 38 degrees, then you are having a true fever. So, look, so doctors have been instructed, and this is what we will be doing, I'm sure you'll be doing the same, um, if you were clinically seeing patients at the moment, uh, we're going to be counselling our clinics if we have a cold. It does not necessarily mean that we have coronavirus and we probably won't, but we're just going to be doing this as a responsible measure to prevent the possibility of spread of the virus to our patients. Uh, so please be uh, kind of alert but not alarmed and if your doctor cancels a clinic uh, it's going to be because we are taking responsibility as we ask our patients to do and we ask the whole community to do because if each of us is really careful and if we try not to spread coughs and colds and flus then we're going to prevent the spread of coronavirus. What do you think the community's take-home message about this should be Priya? Look, I agree with you, which is, I think the first thing is not every cough and cold, like you said, is going to be coronavirus. And I think that's really important for people to understand. Just because you get a sore throat and a cough doesn't mean you've got COVID-19 because there are, in autumn in particular and winter, so many other viruses that can cause those symptoms. Even the common cold virus, like rhinovirus, can cause it. And then we're also entering influenza season as well. So there is going to be a lot of confusion here as to what is COVID-19 and what isn't. I think that, you know, the measure that you're discussing that doctors are doing is absolutely the most careful thing to do, which is healthcare professionals are deemed automatically higher risk for COVID-19 because we see patients and we're face-to-face -face and we have contact with sick people. So if your doctor cancels, I think it's actually them being really responsible. You know, there's a low threshold to swab doctors. And so whilst the swab is pending, the safest thing to do is to cancel everything and isolate until you know whether or not the swab is either negative or positive. So I think if people have got coughs and colds at the moment, there's a, there's a real resistance to chuck a sickie. There's been a bit of negativity around that, I think, um, most times. But now we would say, please throw the sickie and please stay away until you know that it's safe to return to work. And Priya, can you give us some advice? As you said, we're entering flu season. Uh, what can we do to try and minimise the impact of that, given that we're now facing the additional concern of this COVID-19? What can we do to stop us getting the flu? So big one is, is, um, is obviously the flu vaccine. So, you know, the flu vaccine is, you know, a huge, huge, huge way that you can reduce your risk of contracting influenza. So that is usually released um, in around March, April every year in Australia. And what I'm waiting for at the moment is normally we say to people, ideally wait until May or end of April for your flu vaccine so that you're covered for the peak of the season, which is usually in about July, because the, the vaccine tends to wear off after about three months. 
this year, though, I think I'm not sure yet if the recommendations will be different, which is should you be getting your vaccination earlier in order to protect you with COVID-19 floating around as well. Um, so I think we're all, as doctors, waiting on advice from um, kind of government bodies about that. But the flu vaccine is a big one. And then it's all the same stuff as preventing COVID-19, which is hand washing, um, you know, even social distancing with respiratory droplets and avoiding sick people. Um, so it's it's all the same measures. So you're really protecting yourself from loads of things if you're, if you're practising good hand hygiene at the moment. Um, but the vaccine is the other big one. And that's obviously fine for pregnant women as well. That should be said. Yeah, absolutely. The flu vaccine is a must for pregnant women because absolutely. as a woman when you're pregnant, that's the worst time to get the flu. Absolutely. And you're, and I think people don't realise you're actually immunocompromised. You know, pregnancy is an immunocompromised state and pregnant women tend to do not as well with influenza. They tend to have more complications. And so, it's, you know, I actually had two last year, Raylia, because I was pregnant during flu season and I have asthma. And so I had a booster dose being a GP working through flu season um, just to protect me because it was a quite a long season last year. So absolutely safe in pregnancy. So far, we've had quite reassuring uh, kind of anecdotal data about pregnant women overseas and their experience with COVID-19. What have you heard uh, from the point of view of a GP about this information? So I'm getting, you know, the same um, releases that probably you are as well, which is that at the moment we don't think that um, pregnant women are at increased risk of, of complications with COVID-19, which is very reassuring given what I just said about influenza. Um, vertical transmission, which means that does the pregnant mum, if she contracts COVID-19, does she pass it to the baby through the placenta? Doesn't appear to be the case at the moment, but I think, you know, if, if this is going to air soon, that people are going to hear about that, the, the newborn in the UK who's yeah. tested positive, and I think they're trying to determine was that transmitted postnatally? So was that transmitted after the birth or was it actually transmitted in utero? They're trying to figure that out. And I think the key point here, Raylia, for people is um, things are changing constantly with this thing because it's new um, and because dirt data is constantly emerging, more and more countries, you know, gather data and do research and, you know, the, the journals at the moment are just inundated with COVID-19 articles. Um, and so we're learning more every day. But at the moment, it appears, and I just read the Ramscog release recently, that pregnant women don't appear to be at increased risk with this virus, which is reassuring. And there's also a guideline for anyone who's listening who might be pregnant and is worried about all of the issues related to COVID-19, including issues around what if they catch it when they're pregnant, what happens in the neonatal period, what about breastfeeding my baby if I've been diagnosed with COVID. There's a guideline that's been released by the Royal College of Obstetrics and Gynaecology in the UK that's really, really interesting and informative. So we'll put the reference in our show notes. Thank you so much, Priya. Yeah, thank you so no much worries. for coming back and on Knocked Up. Okay. Priya, where can our listeners find you and follow you to find up-to-date advice on COVID and also all other things related to general practice and motherhood? So I'm on um, Instagram as at The Wholesome Doctor and I also have a blog associated with that so people can easily find me there. Thank you so much. We'll speak to you soon. This special episode was recorded on the 15th of March in Melbourne and the information presented is up to date up to this time. Thanks for listening to Knocked Up. For more information about COVID-19, please see our show notes. 
And for more information on fertility or women's health, check out other episodes of Knocked Up and our back catalogue. Subscribe to keep up to date with our latest episodes. Many of the episodes do focus on answering listener questions. This was one of them. If you have other questions, do please be in touch via our email podcast at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au or via the socials. You can follow us at Women's Health Melbourne and at Dr. Rayleigh Alou. See you again soon.